Hello, everyone. This is Mary Jo Matta from EdSearch, bringing you an EdSearch Extra podcast from our Davis Superintendent Summit. On August 4th, 2015, in Davis, California, superintendents and high-level district teams from around California assembled for a day of exploring EdTech solutions, networking with colleagues, and learning from other educational leaders. The summit featured panels throughout the day, and now we're bringing you those talks in podcast form. Now, even if you aren't a superintendent or a district office official, hearing what they have to say is incredibly informative and useful. We started off the Davis Summit with a keynote panel hosted by our very own EdSurge CEO, Betsy Corcoran. We brought together three thought leaders to discuss what blended learning really means. The panel ended up being one of the most tweetable panels of the day, mostly because of the crisp, incisive comments that all three panelists made about teacher and student autonomy, competency-based assessment, and the nature of all those digital assessments our kids have been taking, like Park and Smarter Balanced. In fact, as panelist Richard Kulata said, these digital tests are the worst they will ever be. We're only going up from here. Speaking of Richard Kulata, the panel featured him, the head of the Office of Educational Technology for the White House, Michael Horn, who is the co-founder of the Christensen Institute and author of the book Blended, and Esther Wojcicki, award-winning journalism and English teacher at Palo Alto High School. Team EdSurge presented our California Summit for Superintendents, produced in partnership with the California State Department of Education and Californians dedicated to education. It was an incredibly fun and special event, and we hope that the following recording of our keynote panel will be both informative and interesting for you to listen to. Enjoy. Uh, Here we have Richard Coletta. He's director of the Office of Education Technology, and he joined the DOE about four years ago. He previously worked in education policy. He'd been on the Hill. He also had a really interesting job. He doesn't like to talk about this too much, but he uh, ran uh, learning technologies at the CIA University. Hmm. And he's also been a Spanish teacher. Um, And he's been terrific. Michael Horn uh, in the center has in some ways actually helped start all of the changes that we are seeing. He co-authored a book in 2008 with Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School uh, called Disrupting Class. It's uh, been really a go-to source of reading for many people thinking about how we're trying to change education and what's going on. And he has, in fact, come up with a new book, uh, which... uh, we have right here. And uh, in fact, we have copies of this book for you at lunch. So make sure you come to our lunch. And our third uh, speaker is Esther Wojcicki. She has been a teacher at Palo Alto High School since 1984. And so reality means a lot to Esther. I count on her to totally make things real. She runs the journalism program there as well. And in fact, uh, I have hired and uh, uh, run reporters who have gone through the WAS program, and they are good. Um, Her recent book, just out at the end of last year, Moonshots in Education, is a result of her looking at what's going on across the country and in really pulling together lessons learned and examples. You really will want to get a copy of this, and Esther's going to be here, I think, for most of the day, and we'll be available to talk with you about the book and and share that. So, 
She also has an in with Google. She knows a lot about Google. So if you have questions on Google, she is the girl to go to. So here's what we're going to talk about. How do we set, how do we set priorities? in everything that's going on. Michael, you've done these two big books on education. What's the criteria for your success? What, how do we even know that we're doing it right? That's the right question. And, and in Blended, it's the question that we say you ought to start with first and foremost is, why are you actually getting into this uh, ed tech world, this problem? What, what problem are you trying to solve or opportunity you're trying to shoot for? And what I'd encourage all the educators out there I, I, there's sort of three answers to your question. At the very high level, there's the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness answer, which goes way beyond test scores or anything like that. But for schools, we're trying to prepare the citizenry to lead uh, fulfilling, happy lives where they have economic futures. Um, and so preparing them on those dimensions is really important. The second answer to your question, I think, is you know, test scores are an important part of that. They're not the whole of it, but they're an important part of it. What I would push all of you to do is you're thinking about uh, the voice you have for policymakers is pushing people beyond just looking at proficiency at a point in time and really looking at individual student growth um, in, in much more robust measures. And, and the quick example of that is, say you're a fifth grade teacher, you have children reading at a second grade reading level, you're able to bring them up to a fourth grade reading level. At the end of the year, you give a fifth grade test. You're still not going to look terribly good because they're reading at a fourth grade reading level, but you just brought a student two years of growth in one year. We ought to be recognizing that and celebrating it in a much more authentic, real way. So I, I, I would encourage you to say we're not anti-accountability as educators, but we just want a fair system that actually shows what each individual child is doing. And then the last thing I think is, as you're moving into this blended personalized learning world, really, as you're saying, this is the problem we're trying to solve in our particular school. Come up with what we call a smart rallying cry, a concrete statement that you would know what success means it's measurable, it's quantifiable, it does not have to be a test score, it can be, we want more time for teachers to give rich feedback on writing assignments, we're gonna measure, did they actually create more time to do that? You pick that goal, but make it intentional, make it clear to the community what success is, and that way you can pivot as you're moving forward because you'll have a true North Star the whole way. A rallying cry, that's a great idea. Richard, you have been traveling around the country, you've got a bird's eye view of what's going on. And of course, the Obama administration has made this commitment by 2020, bandwidth, all the schools. How are we doing? So we're actually doing really, really well. And I'm, uh, it's one of the areas that I'm most excited about because we have looked at, uh, when we went, and, and just forgive me for one second for telling you a bit of a personal story here. When I first started in my job, I went around and was meeting with uh, different teachers and leaders across the country. And I remember um, in one particular case, I was meeting with some school leaders and I was talking about how awesome technology could be to personalize learning. And I, you know, I did my whole thing and was expecting them to you know, be so excited about what I was sharing. And I got to the end of my whole spiel and I said, any questions, you know, any feedback, to tell me how awesome I was and somebody raised their hand I said yes tell me what you thought of what I said and the teacher raised her hand and said basically told me in, in uh, more words or less that everything that I had said meant nothing and was ridiculous because they didn't have any connectivity and that I should be ashamed of going around talking about anything to do with the what technology could do until we fix that problem and, and how did you feel about that I um, you know uh, <laughs> 
was a learning experience for me, it's right? This is you're, you're still here. Good iterative learning experience. We, what that led to, though, was really, really helpful. And we, we just said we need to do a much, much better job of getting the basic infrastructure in place before we can talk about what you do with it. And so we spent uh, three years, essentially, really looking at that problem. Um, a number of you were participated in something called the school speed test to try to figure out. So we're going to do an audience speed test. Okay. Okay. You ready? How many people feel that their schools have inadequate bandwidth right now? Raise your hand high so Richard can see you. Not so, too bad. So that's actually really, Not really, uh, that's exciting to see that. Uh, we still need to get more. But you guys should talk with Richard more. afterwards. So, so, so but to answer, answer, answer the quick question here is that w there's a lot of work that has happened behind the scenes that has not really um, hit schools yet, but it will this, this year. And there's a whole bunch of changes that we made in partnership with the FCC around a program called E-Rate to make sure that funding could be used the way schools wanted to, not just the way that it was written to be required to. Uh, and so there's a lot more flexibility there. There's a lot more funding, just frankly a lot more money that has now been put into that program, and that money is actually going to just start going out this year. And so over this year and next, we're going to essentially get uh, every school connected to broadband. And, and the key is we changed our metric for how we measure success. After my nice little interaction with that friendly teacher in uh, South Carolina, one of the things that I, uh, we did is we were saying how many schools are connected to broadband. Uh, and we, you know, essentially we had 100% of schools connected to the internet. Well, to the office. And we were patting ourselves on the back going, 100% of schools, that's great. And so we made a change and said, we're no longer going to count it if the schools aren't connected in the classroom. Novel idea, right? And so immediately, the number of schools connected to broadband dropped from a close to 100% to about 35%. And while that was a hard, sort of painful number for us to look at, it was exactly what we needed to do in order to realize the magnitude of the problem and find a solution to, to fix it. But what I heard you say is this year and next, every school meaning every all the classrooms connected to broadband. So there will be funding available, and, and let me, and I'll be clear about this too, just so we're painting the right picture. There are some schools that literally had everything needed, they had the, the connection there, they just needed some funding to help pay for that. Those schools will get some help immediately. Then there'll be a lag, which will be over you know, the next year or so, uh, for schools that actually are gonna have to build out some connectivity that wasn't there. But there should be funding available to help get that started. And so we'll see an immediate bump when schools get some additional support that they've needed for a long time and then over the course of the next two years, we'll see the rest of those schools coming online. Uh, Betsy, this is something I'm really excited about. I actually think we're going to look back on this, this sort of two-year period, and see this as the single biggest change we've ever seen in education in our country. Wow. Okay. Let's hear a little applause for that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Esther, you've been there. You, ha you are there because you still are a practicing teacher. Esther's actually had her students typing her all summer long going, where are you, by the way? You're off in France, and you're talking about this blended learning. You're supposed to be here at the classroom, right? Um, and uh, in your book, which is really a, a, a terrific collection of stories and case studies, you share some of your favorite examples of times that it works and sometimes that it doesn't. Give us an example. What, what's working and what's not? Well, so what worked, of course, is um, in my own personal classroom, um, I have I actually started with eight computers given to me by the state of California. Thank you, state of California. Um, the only thing, this was back in 1987, only I didn't know how to use them at all. Uh, I mean, I had the audacity to apply for it and then not know what to do. So the question was like, how am I gonna make myself look good? You know, because after all, you don't wanna lose 
face with the state. And so what I did is I admitted to my students that I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And this was like one of the first ever. And uh, turns out this was the change of my teaching philosophy because as a result, all those kids just loved helping me. And um, they're the ones that actually figured out how to use the computers, how to, I didn't even know what the word network was, how to network them, how to do everything connected with them. They spent hours after school on the weekends and everything. It took about six weeks and we put them all up. So it was a miracle. But um, anyway, basically the philosophy, that was a success. It was very successful because, you know, I let go and I gave kids this opportunity to work effectively on a project that really mattered. And after that, that's basically my philosophy and been operating in my program now for all those years. Couldn't that lead to chaos though too? Um, well, actually, it, if you came in the classroom and looked, you're like, oh my God, what are those kids all doing? Oh no, she lost control. You know, you know that's the number one thing that administrators look for is like, she's still in control. And so that was a bit of a problem because I was still in control, only it looked a little chaotic. And by the way, today I should just mention that this program that started with uh, those 19 students and those com six computers or eight computers now has over 600 students and five other teachers. And if you come to the building, and you're all welcome to come, it's in Palo Alto, the new Media Arts Center, 25,000 square feet they just built. Um, you will see kids that are not lined up in rows, that are working on projects that mean something to them, and whose test scores are off the charts. And it's not because we're teaching to the test. We don't actually hand out worksheets, to be honest. It's because they're all working on things that they own, they care about, they have agency. So that's a success story that yeah. I'd like to see you know, replicated. But you've seen times that it hasn't worked, too. Yeah, I've seen t a lot of times when it hasn't worked, actually. So, so one of the things that is really bad or one of the ways that it doesn't work is when districts hand out devices to teachers and say, here it is, the magic pencil has arrived, and now let it do its work. And, you know, the teacher needs to get some support in that. And um, it just having the curriculum is not enough. The curriculum alone does not do it. So that's what I actually wrote about in this book of mine, Moonshots in Education. The moonshot is, can the teacher relinquish some control to the students? Do students have agency? Because if you give students some control, some, I'm not saying all, right? Some control in the classroom. So, for maybe 10%, 20% of the time, they can do some things related to the subject area that they're in control of. Well, my class, it's more like 50% of the time. So, Michael, you're nodding your head when Esther said, you can't just hand out the devices. You've seen a lot of these examples too. What happens when you just hand out the devices. Yeah, I mean, you make it about the tech for its tech's sake, right? And, and instead, we should be thinking about what's the learning problem or, or learning goal we're trying to achieve, and why do we want this? That why question is so, so critical. And I think it, it, it's what Esther's story paints. In the first one, where it was a success, she, she admits, right? She said, I didn't go about this the right way, but then I was able to ask that question with my students, give them some control, and that became a big part of the driver of success there. Um, and I think we see a lot of districts where 
it's just the one-to-one -one craze, right? And one-to-one -one is the buzzword, right? We're a one-to-one -one district. I don't actually want to hear about you as a one-to-one -one district. I want to hear all the great things that your students are doing. And by the way, technology is supporting that, you know, in That's the background right. as a critical part. And I, I want to be clear, I think technology, you, you can't do what we're talking about without technology. It's an absolutely critical part. but. What we're trying to achieve is 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 the ultimate thing here. And, and can I just jump in on that for a second? Because I think yeah. that leads to um, the answer to what I think is one of the most annoying questions in the industry right now, which is, can you show me the evidence that technology makes a difference? Now, uh, Richard, uh, wasn't the federal government kind of involved in actually like forcing all this evidence thing? Well, so, no, no. So let me be clear. I'm all about evidence, but let's ask evidence of the right question. So, so asking, does technology make a difference, is sort of like asking, does paper make a difference, right? I don't know. I don't really care whether paper makes a difference. That's not a, it's not a useful question. But I, there's paper that does really amazing things. There's paper that is just wasting, you know, dead trees. And that's not what we really, what you really want to know. I mean, we'd never ask that question, right? How many would be like, where's the study that shows whether paper makes a difference? You wouldn't do it. <laughs> what you really want to know is, are the activities that you're doing with that paper making a difference? Right. That's and the that's the same question we need to ask of technology. And somehow when we switch over, that little part of our brain just sort of zaps out a little bit. And we need to be asking the same thing. There are the most amazing transformational things I've ever seen that are being delivered through technology. And there are things that you absolutely could not ever do in a traditional, you know, sort of paper and pencil world. I've also seen some really amazingly dumb things that are being done on technology <laughs> that I wish I could erase. And so we really need to be thoughtful in the question that we're asking. And we should ask, is what we're doing transformational and really making a difference? And that's the type of evidence we want to collect. Yeah, I mean, it, right. when you think about it, I've been in a lot of state hearings uh, testifying at, at various policymakers, probably some people that you now know in, in, in the department, and they ask that question, and, and the, the answer I always want to give, and I, I, I restrain myself out of respect, but, but, but go for it, is, yeah. is, is, well, how's the, how's the face to face classroom working for you? Right, like, or, 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 or how's the traditional assembly line working for you, right? Did anyone do a study before we adopted this? No, it's, it's our classroom environment. We think we can do something much more significant now, but the what? So it's fascinating to me as a longtime journalist covering technology as recently as 1996. Okay, we all remember where we were, right? 1996, there were books being published including one that I have by an economist from MIT that said there is no evidence of productivity increase from using computers in the workplace. <laughs> in the workplace, okay? That was 1996. And then things changed. Our practices changed in the workplace. So I echo the point that you're making, but there is an important question to ask, which is that, Yes, we can say that and we can say, you know, we're on the right path historically, but how do you communicate the importance of individual student growth to the community? How, because people do want to see, well, what's going on? Esther, you, you must deal with this every single day. Every kid, you have to deal with every kid individually. And people will say, I have a class that has more students in it than I'm, I'm afraid to tell you actually. Um, but, you know, last year it was 80 kids in one so class. So you had 80 kids in one class. That's right. Like okay. you. Like me, right. <laughs> one to 80. You can imagine everybody's nightmare, except mine. Um, because they work in teams. They work together on projects in teams. I'm putting out a 28-page full-size newspaper every two weeks. Those teams do the work together. 
And your and evidence is the my newspaper. My evidence is, can they do it? And can they work together? Can they learn together? Can they do what they need to do together? And that's right. The evidence is, what's the product look like? And the product, I'm happy to say, won the gold crown from Columbia this year and last year. And it's not just for the printed paper. It's also for the hybrid, what's called the hybrid, so their website. And you should hear them talk to each other about, oh my god, my story isn't up, you've got my headline wrong, you know, you don't, didn't do this right, you didn't do that right, and they're all, you know, interacting with each other. And I'm basically there, I provide the, the infrastructure. You know, I provide whatever it is that they need, but they work independently together. And, and she also provides one other thing, which again, I can, I can share because I know kids who've come through her class, she provides the inspiration. She provides the inspiration for what these kids are doing. Right, I, I do try to inspire them quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, just in case you're wondering, and you think, gosh, I'm really rude, I'm looking at my phone. I'm looking at questions that are already coming over Twitter on my phone, so I'm not trying to be rude to you, but I'm actually gonna start asking some questions that people in the audience are sharing with us. But um, um, after, before you do that, yeah. I just wanna say, yeah. you know, one of the things that came up, I was just in Europe and talking about this Moonshot book of mine, and one of the things that came up in Amsterdam was that they thought it would be a good idea for teachers to also have some collaborator, some friend that would work with them because, you know, it's really hard to be an innovator in a school. Mm -hmm. So if everybody had sort of like a moonshot mentor, they came up with that idea at this summit. And it, it resonated with so many people because then you're willing to take a risk because you're working with somebody, it's kind of like a buddy system. Same thing works in the classroom, but it, teachers need buddies too. Absolutely. So anyway, Absolutely. just wanted to throw that out. We hope you'll up. make some buddies here too. Yes, you guys um, all need buddies too. So Roland says, let's get down to brass tacks. How do you actually define blended learning? We're talking about this. We forgot to do the definition. Okay, so lightning round, how do you define blended learning? One sentence? Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, so the quick explanation is online learning in, in, in schools, right? Um, but the longer definition would be a formal education program, students learning at least in part through online learning where they have some control over the time, the place, the path, and or the pace of learning. That's the first part. Second part, at least in part in a supervised brick and mortar location away from home, that's the school with teacher. And then the last part is that the modalities along each student's learning path have to be connected somehow. So what you're doing offline in a given subject has to connect to what you're doing online. So in the 1980s when you were teaching, but I was in, I, I was in school. Elementary um, school. And, and so elementary <laughs> school, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, and, and the, the uh, teachers would kick me out and send me on to Oregon Trail for a few minutes. And like, you know, that was How many was people not... know what dysentery is? Yeah, well, <laughs> And, and that was not blended learning, because you know what? However many squirrels and buffalo I killed had nothing to do with what I did in math. Yeah. So it's, a great, it's a great point. I, I define it a little bit differently, so just to, just to be clear. So I look, blended learning to me is using technology when it's most appropriate in classroom or out, and using face-to-face -face interaction when most appropriate. Um, I distinguish that from something else that we call personalized learning, which is developing learning experiences that are tailored to the needs of individual students. And you can do blended learning that's not personalized, and that's okay. I would love it if we got to a point where all learning was both blended and personalized, uh, but when I talk about personalized learning, what I mean is it, the pace adjusts, the approach adjusts, 
and it ties to student interest and passions, uh, sort of what Esther was talking about before. And I think those are two separate concepts that really are like dynamite when they work together, but, but um, in my mind are kind of two separate concepts that we need to be figuring out the right special sauce to mix together. Anything you want to add to that, Bester? Yeah. So my definition, of course, is different. Why not? <laughs> so <laughs> clearly there are several definitions here. of blended here. We're going to so, go around and everybody's going to give their own definition <laughs> in a second. Yes, you all get a chance. So mine is you can have 50% of the time it's traditional, you know, because teachers still love to lecture. I've tried to stop this, but I can tell you it's like inbred. And uh, so, so here we are. We have to lecture a little bit. And then the other half of the time, you give stu students, you give them space to work on whatever it is that they're passionate about with technology, because technology is a way to uh, empower them. And so mine is a little simpler, but I agree with, with both of theirs as can, well. Can I, can I just jump in one other thing too and just say, and this may make me unpopular with some people in the room, but I'll, I'll take the chance. I am a little concerned about something that we call flipped learning or flipped classroom. And uh, I've, I've watched how excited people have gotten about that. And, and I have to be honest, I'm not... And, and let's stop for a okay. moment. Let's do our definitions. Flipped learning. Yeah. So... Um the definition that, unfortunately, the definition is, let's take the really sort of boring lecture that you've been giving for a long time in your class that nobody wants to sit through and record it and have the students watch that really boring lecture at home so then when you come into class, you can do a really fun activity. Uh, I, sorry for being and a little bit snarky. Like well, my point would be, let's just not do boring lecture at all. Let's have really, really great <laughs> activities at home and in the classroom. And uh, if you need, and if it's a little I bit, if agree. it's like, if it's like, yeah, I mean, if the, if it's like a little, so, if it's like a gateway drug, right? If you need to do that at first, just for a little bit to get used to not doing the lecture in the classroom because it's too big of a step to Deputy become master. Deputy Secretary it. recommends gateway drug. You know, learning, I'm just saying. If it's the thing that, that helps you move away from a model that you've been in for years and years, relinquish some of that control that yes. Esther's been talking about, that's hard to do. If you need to record the lecture for a little bit, that's okay, but it's not enough to say, that's not the end goal. Like the end goal is just not to do the boring lecture that nobody wants to listen to. And that's the danger with the flipped classroom, I think. So, so I, agree. I, I agree to yeah. a certain extent, but, but I think the gateway drug is not to be underestimated. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and the second thing I would say is I think we, as personalized learning folks, have to be careful not to dismiss direct instruction entirely. Um, and, and in so, fact, Esther said, 50% yeah. yeah, of the time. 50% of the time, and, and, you need and, and, to do it. Yeah, so, so <laughs> totally agree. I don't think every teacher needs to be creating their own lecture and putting it online. I think that's, I mean, there's a lot of resources and a lot of curriculum companies, and you can sort of mix and match and learn things through gameplay, some lecture, whatever makes sense, right? Reading. Um, but, uh, Revolutionary. Hypothetical. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but I, I think where he's right is um, a lot of people still keep, uh, when they move to a flipped classroom, they're still keeping that cohort mentality alive also. So, Yes, you're, you're doing the fun activities in, in class, but you're doing it in lockstep and all the same thing. And you're not like tailoring in the ways that you can. Now let's yeah. talk about one group of learners who are subjected to candidly some of the most boring, some of the most tedious, some of the most mind-numbing uh, professional development. Oh, the teachers. That you know, we see. Let's talk about the teachers for a moment. They're learners too, right? Yes. Do we talk about personalized learning for the teachers? And what, what about that? 
Well, I think that teachers should have the same kind of opportunities that students have, so Amen. that you know, staff so, development wait, 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 wait. should say that, not... Say that a little bit more strongly, because you said something really important there. Teachers need to have an opportunity to be learners, too, and to, be in, to have it personalized, work in teams, be collaborative, and not be lectured to, especially at the beginning of the school year. We all come together for those lectures. They hire somebody for $10,000, and most of us, I can tell you, speaking of a as a teacher myself, we all fall asleep during those lectures. <laughs> so don't do it. Save that $10,000. Save that $10,000. That's right. And allow <laughs> us as teachers to get together and collaborate and work on things that we personally want to do together. You know, we also need some of this blended learning stuff. We could share with each other, gee, I found this over the summer. What did you find? Let's get to, let's see whether there aren't some ideas out there that we can all you know, profit from and work together. Why Michael, you're nodding we... a lot. Have you I, seen I, this? I, well, I agree, I agree completely. I mean, I think what Summit Public Schools is doing in the Bay Area with having created personalized learning playlists for teachers is, is really important. Um, what I would encourage all the leaders here, we're talking about action, um, think about how you can reuse that professional development budget and get away from this mindset of professional development is something that happens three or four times a day when we have a, a particular day dedicated to it, students aren't around, and think about something that professional development is, it's a just-in-time thing that's always going on, it's always the right learning experience for that right teacher, you're leveraging not just the strengths in your building, but quite frankly, teachers across the globe uh, and resources across the globe, and, and, and figure out, you know, with union or, or or, or however that money is locked up, new ways to spend those dollars because as much as I love being one of those folks that come around and put people to sleep because I've written a book, <laughs> Esther was awake when I was there. But um, uh, <laughs> he threw things at yeah. her to but, make but, sure she wasn't nodding. But no, no, no. But, but but it's a serious point. It's insane, right? It because is. I come in, and to Richard's point earlier, you have a handful of teachers who are flipping their classroom, a handful who've gotten together in a team teaching environment and are doing this crazy flex model with a learning studio. They've thrown out the classroom. You got a couple others who are doing a station rotation, and then I talk about one thing. Right? Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. So can I just make, bring that it's really true. concretely to the ground? So we spend billions of dollars every year on something called Title II, which is funding for professional development. It is some of the worst spent money in the education system. <laughs> and I think there is a perception that it has to be used to pay for guest speakers to come in and do their little thing. And I remember being, at, when I was a teacher, I remember sitting there, I was the only Spanish teacher in the building. I remember sitting there and somebody's in there talking about whatever they were talking about, which had to be generic because it you know, was for all the different teachers. And I look across at the physics teacher and I'm like, that's not helping him teach vectors any better. And I'm thinking, none of this is helping me teach past subjunctive in Spanish any better. And so it, it's all just sort of, uh, a lot of ways, kind of, kind of fluffy. And so so what, what can people use that money for? So this exactly the sort of stuff that Michael was talking about. You can have, you can use it to have teachers spend time together working through new models, right. working through looking at new, developing new content, bringing people in, but to help as a coach with a specific group of teachers right. that need it. Like we just don't need to be thinking of this. Uh, you know, bring in a guest speaker equals uh, professional development. We need to do much, much more creative work. Well, they should than that. have moonshot. You guys put them together and have moonshot mentors. Let them mentor each other. Yeah. That would be really, even if you don't know anything, it doesn't matter. You're still a buddy with that other person. And this actually comes right to a question that Jacqueline uh, has asked, which is, you know, how do we inspire teachers to take these steps? So, for instance, Esther, you were, you were a hero teacher, right? You were kind of out there on the diving board by yourself, you know, that sort of thing. And, and hero know. teachers are phenomenal, but it takes a tremendous amount of work. How do we collect? 
effectively support our teachers to make change? Well, I think one thing is you have to support them. Uh, you have to support people that seem to have all these nutty ideas because for a long time, they were like, oh my God, do you know what that teacher in that portable is doing? By the way, this whole program of mine was built in a portable. So I had like Before you had the, your big fancy center? Now I have this big, fancy, beautiful center of 25,000 square feet, but, but I was in a portable for 30 years. 30 years. <laughs> yeah, can you yeah. believe? And the last year, the roof leaked. Yeah. So it was a very, it had a lot of personality. But um, in any event, I think that it's not easy to be one of those hero teachers because you know, people were always like wondering why I wasn't following and doing everything that everybody else is doing. So, so what do we do to, to encourage those people who aren't quite willing to get out on the diving board? What do we do? That's why I thought if they all had a buddy, you buddy. know, they can okay. be um, a little, you're, you're more of a risk taker if you have a friend. That's true. Yeah. Let, me, let me give two tangible things. Um, so one, Carrie Matsuoka um, from Milpitas School District is in it's the audience. Um, I, th I think, there you are, Carrie. Um, hey. So he's speaking later, but he can talk uh, about how as a district team, um, they basically set up a design competition for teams of teachers to come together with what, what should school look like. And, and they helped coach them along with some parameters to give them some ideas about what this future state might look like. But it all of a sudden became something like, no, no, the district wants to see you innovating, right? And we're gonna listen to your ideas and we're gonna fund a couple of you to actually do something. And so that was, I think, hugely significant. He can talk more at length about that. The other one I would say is we're starting to see more resources emerge that hold up teachers. So better oh, so lesson. let's talk about the resources. I, so this isn't one here, I apologize. But uh, Better Lesson um, has now, uh, funded by the Learning Accelerator, um, has created videos of teachers doing blended learning in a variety of different schooling environments, free videos, um, and starts to talk about, uh, if you will, the moves of a blended learning teacher, how they do what they do in different circumstances. And you have everything from uh, what they call lone wolf uh, teachers who are by themselves in a school, the only one doing blended learning. Uh, and then they've got teachers in more expansive turnaround, you know, uh, redesign environments of school where the whole, uh, there's a big culture shift in the actual school. And, and I think that's an extremely helpful resource for teachers. Right. Can, I, can I share one quick story? So we yeah. just launched a, a tool on our website. Our website, by the way, is tech.ed.gov, T-E-C-H.ed.gov. And if you go there, we have a new stories tool. We're collecting really innovative stories. And we have a whole category of stories on professional development. And we're just getting started, so you should go and submit some of them. But, but the one that I wanted to just share is a great one that's up there from uh, Chicago Public Schools. And they did this thing called Playdates, which is uh, it's sort of like a progressive dinner where the teachers go from one classroom to the next, and each teacher has five minutes to share one of the things that they're doing, a tool, some, some piece of technology they're using that's really effective in their classroom. And the deal is um, anybody who has the word technology in their, in their title can't speak. And if they do, you know that game, was it Taboo? Was that the one where you'd be like, you know, you'd hit the button if you said the wrong, <laughs> that's what they all do. And so no, if there's like a tech director or IT or whatever, anybody who has the word tech in their title can't say a word. And they go from one classroom to the next and the teachers just show very quickly what they're doing. And they do that a couple times a year. Um, that's a really fun way for them to just sort of see what other teachers are doing and get a look inside their classrooms that they wouldn't see normally because they're teaching at the same time. You know, there's a lot of companies out here that are promoting this kind of um, blended learning, which is, I think, part of the reason why they were probably selected. Part of the reason they came. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you take a look and you s look at some of the stuff they're doing, they help promote this kind of learning. One of them is Hapara, 
And Hapara, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's kind of like Google Docs on steroids. <laughs> so what it does is it allows the teacher who is somewhat afraid of relinquishing control to have total control while your students are still having the idea that they're in control. Because what happens, the teacher can see on laptop exactly what every student is doing. You can see the work they're doing, and you can also get the data of how they're doing. So that is, I mean, but there's yeah. other companies out there as well that are doing some pretty amazing stuff. I think the entrepreneurs of the world today are really helping to, you know, move education forward. Because, because so many all of them came tools, out of the classroom as well. Pardon? A lot of them came out of the classroom. A lot of them came out of the classroom. And Think Circa is another one. There's a, I, I just was just looking at the list. It's, it's a pretty it's, neat it's, list. So we're going to let you get to that in one minute. Before we run out of time, one or two more quick questions. Um, Andrea has this question really, it starts with Richard, but, but I'm sure goes through. So, okay, Richard, you told us that you, about the game where you, you, you stopped the tech people from talking, but the tech people do need some support. Oh, sure. And what can you tell us about what kind of support in terms of staffing, sustainability, what, what kind of support, what kind of human tech support really should the schools be looking for? Yeah, so, so uh, absolutely, and just in, the, in my example is I think it's really powerful to have activities where it's just teacher sharing, but that doesn't mean at all that we don't need to be supporting and thinking about the integration of the two. There's a lot of ways to do it, and I, I could give a bunch of examples, but I'll, let me just give one, just to, just to sort of be brief, but I'd say that one of the most powerful things that I've seen are districts where the, the people who have the tech in their titles, right, who are the other uh, tech leaders, are part of the learning teams. And it seems like something that is maybe a, a sort of a strange concept, but is actually incredibly powerful when you have whoever is responsible for tech support or IT or whatever, whatever titles we use in that part of the building, who actually sits in on, if you have like PLC meetings or, or other groups where teachers come together and think about and plan with what they're doing, and actually feel like they're a part of those teams and feel like their role is to help support the teachers in getting their work done. It's a really important shift that when, when I've seen it happen in schools, it's just magical. Uh, and when it's not happening and when the tech team is like this thing that happens over off to the side somewhere and, you know, occasionally they have to, you know, deal with the, the teachers because, you know, they, they can't avoid them too long. Th those are the dysfunctional uh, situations that aren't, aren't effective. So bringing those teams together. This is a great suggestion. What about accountability in PD programs? I mean, we talk a lot about accountability for our schools and our our kids and our grades. Um, what about in the professional development programs that we were referring to earlier? What kind of accountability should we have there? Or are we good where we are? We don't have any right now, I don't think. You know, people can sleep right through the PD, you know? No one will know. Um, mm -hmm. I think we need to have some sort of, I don't, I don't know, some kind of accountability. Can you do something with it? Yeah. And, and I don't think it's a policy-driven thing, right? I mean, no. because the policy should stay on the student outcomes, but I do think within the school buildings themselves, mm -hmm. you should be creating learning goals for each teacher at the beginning of the year about how you're going to get better at your craft. There's a danger in extrapolating from what happens in Finland to the United States, mm -hmm. but something that they do really well is that the teachers are very invested in this year, like these are the three things I'm gonna get much better at, and they invest themselves in doing that, but why not as a school help set up that uh, practice and, and really invest in it and then say like, 
Did no. you get better in these things? It's right. a good idea. Yeah, so, so there's this idea that we talk about, particularly in higher ed, about competency-based education, right? Where we basically say, here are the things that we want to learn, and then here are opportunities to be able to do it. That's a concept that I think needs to be applied much more to teacher professional learning. The, the idea of, I, when I go and speak places and somebody comes up after and has me sign the certificate, right, for them to get credit or whatever, for, I just, I always laugh at that, because I'm like, what, what is this certificate? This certificate <laughs> says that you didn't die for the hour that you were sitting here. <laughs> and like, if we wanted to know that, there's all kinds of other ways that we could know that. And so it's just not very helpful. And instead, if there are ways to say, here's something that I can demonstrate that I've learned, that now has value. And so I think we need to be thinking about how we're measuring learning for, for teachers. And I do want to kind of harp on the accountability question one more time, Richard, because you're here, you're representing the federal government. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big job. Uh, but you know, so we, yes, we want to make sure that we're driving accountability for student performance too, but what about all these tests? Yeah. So, so that's a, it's actually a really great question and it's one that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, it's interesting because we talk about how much we um, don't like assessment. But, but actually, I think we really do like assessment. We're just really frustrated with the current tests. And, and let me give two quick examples of that. So one is, I've talked to a parent who is saying, um, you know, we, we can't, I'm opting out. These are the testing, over-testing, too much testing, you know, just doing that whole rant. And I was like, oh, interesting, okay. And tell me about your kid, they're going to college. Yeah, going to college. I made him take the SAT five times. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you paid <laughs> five times to take a test at the same time, you're telling me how, you know, like, w w tests are, are evil and all that sort of stuff. And, and what, 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 what it is an example of, and this is really important for us to remember as school leaders, it's an example of the fact that it's not that people don't like having assessment. We need assessment. We need accountability. It's that they don't feel value. And by they, I mean parents, I mean teachers, I mean students don't feel value in some of the assessment that we offer. And so I think we need to be really thoughtful about saying, how do we make sure we actually feel uh, value from the assessments? How is it informing our instruction? How is it helping us move forward? That's something on all of us. We, we, have, we have new assessments coming out. There's, there's two assessment consortia that you're all very familiar with, especially here in this state. And, and by the way, awesome to hear how many have transitioned to digital learning. But something that I say, or to digital uh, uh, delivery, um, something that I say often, which some people are, are shocked about, but I think it's important to say, those tests are the worst they will ever be. Say they that are, one will, more time because are, I think we all need to hear that. And, and, and I want to make sure, I really want to make sure we understand that because some people are like, wait, we moved away from the, the, the sort of paper fill in the blank test to these digital tests. They are the worst they will ever be. And so and, they're and, going and the to get better. Is, the problem is the paper tests were the best they ever could be. They could not get better. There was no way to make them any better than they were really and still deliver them. And so this is hard. It's a big clunky shift. I know it's caused a lot of stress. I know it's really not an easy time. But the fact that we're moving over to a new approach, a new way to think about assessment, has the shot at actually making this more relevant, have tests that really feel like there is, they're, they're really embedded in context, get, get results back much, much faster. And so it's a clunky shift. Shift, but I'm really, really hopeful that we can get to a place where, yes, we're doing assessment, but it's assessment where the line between assessing and learning is very blended, and we actually are feeling value from those tests. I, I think those are tremendously important points. What I, what I just want to jump in on is Richard mentioned competency-based learning earlier, and I think that's a huge part of this uh, puzzle. And just to simply define competency-based learning, I basically mean you move on when you've mastered a concept, not because of the time. So it's okay? like mastery learning. Yeah. Mastery, mastery right, learning. Right, yeah. right. So, and um, That's in what a competency-based learning or a mastery-based learning system, 
your assessments, we have this construct right now in education where we have formative assessments that are to drive learning and then we have summative which are of learning to, to report out. Competency-based learning blows this, this uh, dichotomy apart because every single assessment you take is both for and of learning, right? It drives what you do next. If you haven't mastered it, it helps you decide what you need to keep drilling in on. And uh, it's also a representation of what you not just can know, sorry, know, but you also what you can do. And so this is a really, really important point where I think, you know, this is the beginning, but like 15 years from now, we could be at a very different state where we don't take off a week or two for testing, but instead tests are just interwoven and actually transparency and accountability right. is something that's a daily thing that we understand. It's not that one thing, and we know something about data, which is that when you use data uh, in a way that doesn't inform what you can actually do, it's not actionable, it's deeply demotivating to learning. But when data is actionable, it helps you do, it helps inform what you do next so students can take it and say, oh, that means I need to work harder on this. Not only does it build perseverance and grit and all that, but it's also deeply motivating for learning. And right now, all the tests that Richard was just talking about, they literally have no bearing on a student. Right. So here's the last question. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is the magic wand question, okay? If you could give one thing, to a new superintendent. If you could give one thing to a new superintendent to help them on this path, what would that be? I would develop a culture of trust in the school where the teachers feel trusted and respected and in turn the students feel trusted and respected. Because I think that, and you as the superintendent have that ability to do that and you're the only one. And when teachers feel empowered, trusted, respected, then they wanna do the best job they can. But if they feel threatened, then they're, they're always, they're afraid. And I think the testing that we were just talking about, they're all afraid. And we don't want tests that make people fearful because then they don't, teaching is a, is a passion. You know, you, you really care about your students and you care about what they're learning and you don't want to be thwarted. So that's what I would do. Great. Michael? Yep. Besides a copy of Esther's book, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would give um, superintendents a, a phrase that I, I learned uh, or has mo meant the most to me. Again, I'll, I'll quote Carrie Matsuoka again. Um, defined autonomy. Defined autonomy. Yeah, don't be afraid to give your teachers and principals in your district defined autonomy. Give them the autonomy to do what they need to do for their students. And the defined part is, you know, we're going to hold you to some outcomes, right? But we're going to give you the freedom to experiment and play with your learning environment as needs make sense. And, and I think that goes along with the culture of trust. But really, I trust you to do the right thing for your students, that you're here for the right reasons. Great. Um, and I'm going to cheat and say uh, I would give them a copy of the Future Ready Pledge. <laughs> and the reason I'm cheating is because there's seven elements, so I just stuck seven things in there yeah, for the price of one. But, um, but, but, but seriously, the, the pledge, which was developed by superintendents, <laughs> lists out seven items, seven areas, where if superintendents pay attention to these, these areas, they will really, we've seen really uh, impactful change. And by the way, trust is one of the things that's on there, engaging with families, rethinking professional learning, and providing access for all students are all pieces of 
of that. And so that would be the piece that I would, I would share. And also, by the way, by signing that Future Ready Pledge, it brings you into a community of superintendents who are also trying to do that same work. So can I just say one thing about this, my book? Yeah. The book is going to, sorry, I can't give it away. I only have, don't have very many copies left, unfortunately. And the publisher was getting kind of, you know, difficult. Um, and so uh, there being um, Hapara, thanks to Hapara, they're going to sell them for me. And um, yeah, today at, the, at their booth, and they're $20, you know, cash you or go. check or something like that, which is a discount from Amazon. But I just wanted to mention that before I forget. And I would like to point out that all of the people on this panel have actually freely given their time to be here with you today. So please join me in thanking a terrific panel. Thank you. Big thanks to all of our panelists for participating and to Betsy Corcoran for moderating. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors for sponsoring and making our Davis Summit even possible. And also, thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed this very special Ed Surge Extra, check out our other panels from the Davis Summit, up on both iTunes and SoundCloud right now. Until next time, I'm Mary Jo Matta, and thanks for listening. <laughs>